Hello and welcome to the podcast Terrorism and Political Violence, a podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. This podcast is comprised of two types of episodes. In Issues Up Close, editors of the TPV journal will discuss a range of subjects from prominent issues covered by the journal, such as the history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence, and major global trends and threats. In our Book Talks episodes, editors will host conversations with experts from across the field to discuss their current work. In today's Book Talks episode, TPV editor John Horgan interviews Daniel Kohler, founding director of the German Institute on Radicalization and De-Radicalization Studies, and a world-leading scholar of radicalization and de-radicalization. On his recently published book, From Traitor to Zealer, exploring the phenomenon of side-switching in extremism and terrorism. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Terrorism and Political Violence podcast. I'm John Horgan, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Terrorism and Political Violence and a professor at Georgia State University's Department of Psychology. Today's guest is someone well-known to those who work in terrorism research. He is the founding director of the German Institute on Radicalization and De-Radicalization Studies and a world-renowned scholar of radicalization and de-radicalization. His books include Right-Wing Terrorism in the 21st Century from 2016, Understanding De-Radicalization, Methods, Tools, and Programs for Countering Violent Extremism, also inexplicably from 2016. Um, I, I have questions for our guest on how he managed to get two books in one year, but whatever. And his most, um, 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 uh, his second most recent book from 2019 is The Radical Journey, How German Neo-Nazis Voyage to the Edge and Back. Our guest has developed um, several major de-radicalization and family counseling programs and also uh, pioneered several innovative methodological approaches to the study of de-radicalization especially surrounding uh, family counseling approaches around the world. In addition to all of his books, he's published numerous articles and chapters on the topic. And if, that, if all of that wasn't already enough, he somehow manages to find the time to be the editor of Journal for De-Radicalization, a journal he actually founded. His most recent book, um, which was published late last year, is called From Traitor to Zealot exploring the phenomenon of side-switching in extremism and terrorism. That book was published by Cambridge University Press and, and as someone who has read it not once but twice, it is truly fantastic. Today's guest, of course, is the one, the only, the, the doctor of de-radicalization himself, Daniel Kohler. Dan, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, John. I'm really excited to be here. Dan, there's there's so much we can talk about. Uh, I mean, I have I have so much I want to ask you about current and future directions around around de-radicalization. But but if I may, let's begin by by talking about this brilliant new book of yours from from Trader to Zealot. Um, this book is about what makes say uh, a neo-Nazi become a committed anti-fascist, or how an, how an extreme left-wing activist becomes a Salafi. Um, uh, this, I mean, it sounds crazy. Um, why would someone do this? How, you know, why, why would they even be accepted? Um, can you can you tell us about how this book came to be? 
Yeah, very, very gladly. This this is still a route um, I'm still traveling. It's, it's still in the process, I feel, even after having looked at, you know, a couple of uh, dozens of cases, I'm, I'm still finding new cases. They still keep popping up. After um, a couple of years ago, I was looking into um, some cases that are generally well known here in Germany, uh, the far right um lawyer who was a co-founder of the Red Army faction, a left-wing terrorist Red Army faction, or uh, a well-known Salafi Jihadi uh, who's active in prison, who was also a left-wing terrorist uh, years ago. So there are very, you know, a small handful of cases that are widely known here in Germany. And I was quite curious to understand, to see how they themselves would um, discuss and explain their side switching. They are quite open. Usually they talk about these in, in interviews, they publish all the biographies, etc. And, and then I looked into the social psychological literature and I, and I couldn't find anything, any theory that helps explain this or, or chart these steps and processes. And I, I remember I asked you and I asked a couple of other friends and colleagues and the response was always, no, there's not really a theory. There's nothing really that explains to us why they would take these steps, which are very risky, very dangerous. They're they, not at all. They, they, they prove for them to be a, a, an increase in status or power, etc. All these standard things that we would ex expect people to motivate to change groups or ideologies and do that across a hostile ideology to a very risky situation, risk your life, was simply there was nothing out there. So I started looking at these cases, started reading their stuff and hearing their stories and their narratives, and I be became really, really fascinated with it. And it turns out the more I asked about it, the more I, I, I looked for it, the more of these cases just popped up. And, and then somehow this, this book came I up. I mean, this, it is fascinating. I mean, I, I do remember you, um, it seems, I guess, gosh, I guess it was a few years ago now, you reached out about mm -hmm. it. And I remember thinking, um, I definitely hadn't heard of anything and, and, and certainly hadn't seen any literature, but but I was surprised just about not just the lack of literature, but the but the idea that this would 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 actually happen. You know, I mean, I had I think I said to you at the time, you know, I was aware of a few cases of people who had left religious terrorist groups and had become, um, you know, had had embraced different religions and, and they almost, you know, they almost had converted in a way. Um, but but this was surprising to you that there was that there was so many cases out there of this process happening. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, uh, yeah. No, so I, I was just going to. So I'm going to ask you. I mean, why does it happen? I mean, it's it seems it seems unusual, and so so the idea that there would be lots and lots of cases out there. Uh, I mean, have have we just missed something that is right under our noses? As, as someone who's basically um, brought to us the studies of, of de-radicalization, disengagement, obviously with, uh, with your book, John, um, one of the major works, uh, I think that we are looking here at a new type or different type of disengagement and failed de-radicalization, or let's put it a, a case of re-radicalization. They, they usually start in the narratives with pointing out stuff that they really dislike about their current or their older group. They have conflicts, infighting, hypocrisy, power struggles. 
they have burnout, they, they are generally fed up with the group and the milieu, the environment they are in, which we know is a standard push and pull factor in de-radicalization, disengagement, people exiting mm -hmm. from these environments altogether. But then they decide that leaving extremism, violence, terrorism, radicalism behind altogether is not what they want. They still retain what you might call role residuals or core motivational aspects, core aspects of their ideological DNA that, that I would call it. Um, sometimes it's anti-Semitism. Sometimes it's, it's hatred against the government or the police. Sometimes it's talk masculinity. So they, they have these core drivers, ideological drivers that keep them engaged and they look for other ways to 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 live out these drivers and to really manifest them to fulfill these goals and these ideas for them at least in the narratives leaving altogether exiting de-radicalizing de disengagement is, is never really an option they want to do more they want to fight more they want to to be engaged more and then they look for other alternative environments other groups and even ideologies that help them to do that it's it's truly fascinating. So 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 how is it that they become in 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 many of the cases you describe in your book they become accepted by well that they they not they not only gravitate to a group that was once the enemy but that 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 new found in group for them now accepts them. I think here the the point of their narratives, the self-explanatory narratives, um, it actually helps them to sell, to make a point, to make a case. Because it's not just what we all know that people change groups within the same ideological family. You're just fed up with these guys you hang out with and you go to another group that basically says they want to fight for the same goals. No, you, you go to the enemy, you become a traitor. And the enemy side has every reason to suspect you're a spy, you're opportunist, and, and basically to reject you or to even kill you on the spot. They, they very likely have, you know, uh, a, a lot of things to, to, to um, get back with you about because you have fought against them. Um, and then they usually there are a couple of strategies that usually use um, depending on the route they travel from the far left to the far right to the Salafi jihadi environment, they would almost always heavily claim to be the most convinced anti-Semite, the most pro-violent, the most masculine warrior you can imagine. Uh, they, they would say where I come from, for example, the far left or even the far right going to the Salafi jihadis, they were not tough enough. They were not masculine enough. They were not, they know, they were not consequent enough about their uh, hatred against Israel, against the Jewish communities. And I want to I want to do that. I want to be 100%. So I come to you here offering what I am, my power, my skills, my knowledge in our joint conquest, in our joint fight against, against the West, against democracy, against Israel, against the, the Jewish religion, Jewish community. Um, so this is what their main selling point is. And they usually bring something to the table. They usually have experience in violence. They usually have skills like networking, propaganda making, online skills, etc. So many of them have something to offer and, and something to sell. Now, in the other way, from the far right to the far left, they would always come saying, I have, I have realized 
what I have helped build. I've built something terrible, something horrible, something evil that, that I have no regrets about. And I want to bring it down. I want to help destroy what I helped create in the past, name, namely the neo-Nazi or the extreme right environment. And I don't trust the government. I don't trust the police to actually do that. I want to fight them 100%. Uh, and then they bring all the names and data and all the, you know, the details of the former comrades to the table and say, here, listen, you can have everything, just help me destroy what, what I build. Now, these, some of, these are some of the core narratives that they use, but I suspect that it's really a lot about making personal connections and appearing convinced that you actually have thought about the other side's perspective, the ideology, the narratives, that you're willing actually to give up everything you had in the name of your new group and your new ideology. It's truly fascinating. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a repeat of the, you know, in some of the, the converts literature, we hear of this pressure to prove hypothesis that it's about, you know, being seen to be more of this, more of that, more committed. And having to having to re up that now in the face of of, of a group that was once the enemy. Mm -hmm. Exactly, it's, it's also my theory that these um, side switchers turn out to be more dangerous to the overall society because they have to prove themselves. They have no other choice. They have to be more violent, or they have to be more committed, doing more propaganda, showing somehow that they are more convinced, more radical. Um, more true to the core than, than all of the others who were basically growing up or, you know, just being a member of that one environment. What do we know about whether people who switch sides um, retain the same roles, retain the same kind of job or task, or do people, do people, does the nature of their involvement, does the type of role or job that they fulfill change when they switch sides? I think that very much depends on the skills they have. Those side switchers that I've seen who are basically, you know, street soldiers, thugs, more, you know, experts in violence, they, they were easy to use in different capacities. But the other ones who had very specific skill sets and very specific knowledge coming, you know, I'm just thinking about a well-known um, former far-left rapper, rap musician who shifted to the neo-Nazi side and even took over his, his alias name, his artist name, and continues to, to make, to produce rap music for the neo-Nazi side, the neo-Nazi environment in Germany. So obviously they have a very specific skill set and they try to use that for the new environment as well. But it, it very much depends. There are very many intellectual side switchers who you know, produced a lot of literature, many of them or some of them even having had some kind of academic background and then they shifted from um, producing literature or theories or legitimacy for the far left, even the violent revolutionary far left, and then to the far right, the revolutionary violent far right. So whatever they bring to the table, sometimes it, it depends a lot on the group, their connections and how much they are trusted actually. It's not that they just walk over and then they are celebrated. It's a process of reintegrating yourself into a new environment. And there's a lot of work actually involved. You have to learn a new language. You have to learn new connections, networks. And you always, you will always meet people who are quite 
suspicious about you as a former enemy, quite naturally. Do we know about what facilitates the process of, of switching over? So, you know, I, I, as I'm sure you obviously know, there are a few different models out there about how disengagement from terrorism, broadly speaking, works. And, 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 and according to, let's say, Helen Ebal's model, there is, there is a, a process whereby people consider what kinds of alternatives they have whenever they decide, you know, well, should I, should I stay or should I go, to coin a phrase? And, 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 and very often it's about having a social connection, having someone that can, that can help you leave or can, can sort of, you know, serve as that, that, that pull factor to get out. Um, is, is, is there some social connection in that other group that helps pull the person out? Or is this something that is, is it more ideological? I mean, how does it, how does it actually work? So if, if I am, for example, uh, a member of an extreme right-wing group and I, Somehow I'm thinking about gravitating to my enemy. What do I do? So I, I think that to, to a certain point, um, the processes are almost similar. So you are fed up. There are, there are certain things that you really have grown to dislike in your group or in, in your environment, your ideology. You, you start to see the hypocrisy or start to see some 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 um, some other issues, power struggles, etc. They always all these sites, which was especially from the far right to other groups, would would claim that it's 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 the moral degeneracy, it's the backstabbing, it's the, the hypocrisy mm-hmm. in that environment that drives them out. But you are absolutely right. There is a highly social component. You meet other people sometimes even in brawls and fights. They 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 engage in fights with the far left, and they learn to respect them and then they realize well they they can fight they're really tough so i should probably look into that stuff if they have hard tough fighters maybe it's not all um true what we what we think about the far left and the the antifa for example but it's very very much also online discussions they meet online in chat rooms they they are quite open to discuss and debate their own background stories and perspectives especially within the far right this is one of the the main findings in my book that the extreme the far right is by far apparently the most welcoming environment for side switchers which is also kind of concerning they they openly embrace former far leftists or jihadis and they would basically welcome them, cheer them on, and try to learn from them how to get other people to switch sides as well. They call it red-pilling strategies that will really discuss in detail what kind of philosopher, what kind of ideological argument really made you rethink or what really makes sense to use against the far left. So it's social, social context, getting to know people and discuss with them and basically also learn about their core drivers. You need to find the hook the one ideological hook, the, the core that you can use to yourself and to your environment, to your new group, as the main selling point. They would very often use the, 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 the saying, I need to be able to look into the mirror, to look, to look into my own eyes into, into the mirror. I need to be upright. I need to be able to believe in myself. And to do that, you need to find that one thing that is a commonality. And that might be, if you want to join the far left from the far right, might be fighting the extreme right and the capitalist system, democratic system, because 
fighting the system, fighting democracy, fighting the US, the imperialism is also a goal of many far-right groups. So you need to, to have something to hold on to in your belief system and then restructure everything around that ideological core. That is deeply worrying. I want to, I want to come back to this issue for a second, the, the, the notion that the far-right in particular is especially accommodating of, of not just the, the, the ideological diversity you mentioned, but also of p potential side switchers. Do, do we have any data, let alone reliable data, on what kinds of experiences side switchers have? So, so for example, you know, we say that you know, d disillusionment is, is, is you know, people being just fed up, people, people being disappointed about their initial experiences. They, they move from one group to another. Do we know anything about their subsequent experiences? I mean, are, are, they, are they just setting themselves up for subsequent failure or, or, or is this newfound home um, a, a place where, where, where they are no longer disappointed? I think that we need... Or, or, do, or do we know? Maybe we don't know yet. Yeah, we know, of course, only those stories of successful site switchers. It mm -hmm. basically doesn't make any sense for them to tell the story of a failed site switching. Um, I, I suspect that when they try and fail, they, they, they will try to sneak into their former environment and never, <laughs> never mention it to anyone. Um, but those stories that we have are usually filled with um, expressions of gratitude and, and, and solution to their problems. They, I think what we need to understand is the, the, the therapeutic component of being, being part of an extremist environment. I think personally, it's, it's a theory that I have that radicalization in itself, the process of radicalization, a psychological process, is both deeply traumatic and therapeutic at the same time like a pendulum, it, com it always throws traumatic stuff at you, problems, um, frustration, anger, hatred, all the time. But at the same time, it provides solutions, a, a strong, loyal group of, of, of friends and, and com comrades who fight together with you, who understand you, who provide you with that safe harbor. Um, and all, all of these ideological the sense-making behind it, the goals, the purpose, all of that puts them at ease. So I, their stories, ironically, I would say it's easier. It's for them psychologically, mm -hmm. it's, it puts them at ease. It's the easier form of disengagement. They disengage with the first environment and then they re-engage. So they spare all the hard part, the hard work on yourself, taking responsibility, realizing that you have done something horrible with your life, that you have hurt a lot of people, um, all of that, they avoid that. that avo they avoid taking responsibility. They avoid critical reflection and they move on. They say, yeah, I've, I've, I've made mistakes. I've basically traveled into the wrong direction for a while, but I've realized that and now I'm better for it. I learned from it and I'm putting it to good use now. And just imagine someone who has realized that they've made a terrible mistake for many years of their lives and causing a lot of, 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 of uh, basically a lot of pain for, for many, many people. And then you say, yeah, but generally speaking, 
I had the right idea, but I had the wrong method. I was with the wrong crowd. So now I know where to go, right? Right. Now, so, I mean, I wonder, is there, uh, you know, I can't, I mean, it's just so, so fascinating to think about where this research could go. Is there a sort of a, an issue of sunk costs? So, okay, I got it wrong the first time. I'm now, I'm now with a group that I've once identified and, 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 and rallied against as my enemy. So I better make the most of this second time around and not, and not, you know, switch, switch yet again. Do we know of any cases of people who have not just side switched once, but, but twice or more? Yeah, I've come across a very small number. I think one or two or three of these cases, uh, Finnish former left wing extremist who became a Salafi jihadist and then left that environment again and, and returned to the far left, uh, for example, that, that that is one case that comes to mind. Um, but rarely, I would say, at least the stories that we have, usually these side switchers, once they made this step, they try to make sure that's the last step that, mm. that they take. You mentioned trauma, Daniel. So you, you've written about trauma um, um, for, for several years now. It seems to be an issue that is is slowly gaining traction in the literature in terms of you know trauma being a, a in some cases perhaps a a risk factor for involvement in terrorism and certainly we know it to be a, a an outcome a consequence of involvement for for many more can you can you talk a little bit more about about trauma and why it is we seem to be just slowly recognizing it as a as an issue here I think the literature and, and practitioners and researchers have, for the most part, tried to look for that um, psychological recipe or that specific personality type who is most prone to it or most vulnerable to radicalization. And I know that, that uh, you are also quite um, open about um, it's clearly stating that we don't have these profiles that psychological research for decades and decades has not produced anything, any reliable, uh, you know, psychological profile of the would-be terrorist. But we, what we do know, I think, is that, and you mentioned that, that being an extremist, being in part of a radical environment, off, offline or online, is usually quite strainful. It's usually, it takes a lot of, takes a great toll on your psyche on your personality on your health um, and that is something that practitioners cv de-radicalization disengagement practitioners have have quite often come across that when these people exit and leave they are burned out they're really they're 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 you know they're sinking into this dark deep hole um, many turns suicidal many turn quite depressive um, because they they get all of these um you know these the impact of them being extremists for many, many years, not living really healthy, and then obviously also realizing that they've thrown away a great, great deal of their life and caused a lot of pain. But I also think, and I've heard that from, from many former extremists, that there is a genuinely positive aspect about being member of an extremist environment as well, which is the camaraderie, which is the loyalty, which is the purpose and the sense it drives them to do all these these violent things, these radical things for a long period of time, and sacrifice so much that 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 anyone holds so dear your health, 
um, your job, your friends, your family, anything. Um, and this is taken away from them once they exit the group, the loyalty, the purpose. And obviously, site switchers retain that immediately. They, they, they don't really, they rarely have any sense of, of that deep hole or lack of purpose. So it's a very smooth process for most of these site switchers, actually. Yeah. And so, you know, to, to pick up on one of your earlier points, you mentioned how, um, you know, you, you are, if I hear you correctly, it's you're, you're especially concerned about side switchers because, you know, in contrast to many people who become involved in terrorism, you know, the, the disillusionment, the disenchantment, it, it sort of, in, in some ways, it comes from ideas and experiences and feelings just not being worked out or, or by, you know, fantasies not being fulfilled. But for a side switcher, it's, it, it, it sounds like someone who has really worked through their ideas and, and, and has, and is, and is preparing and is preparing to, if anything, re-up that commitment. Yeah. I, I think next to the role of trauma that, that side switchers might try to, subconsciously even avoid you know meeting their own their own trauma and, and working on it and so they they continue seeking this drug of sense and purpose and, and and camaraderie and loyalty i think the role of ideology is the next big issue that that uh, that we need to talk about and, and the role of ideology is also seen or heatedly debated in in our field does it play a role does it play no role um, you know, when does someone start to become ideologicalized or indoctrinated? And I think this has a lot to do with how we frame, how we understand the, the term ideology. And I think it's, it's a lot different from what most scholars in this field would understand it to be, which is mostly an intellectual um, concept of a worldview, for example, or philosophy. And I think it's, it's a lot more emotional and social social in in its core um what it does and how it works so ideology ideology is 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 is, is a clearly understood problem and a solution in the future vision which can be communicated through songs through literature through t-shirts through community at a rally for example or a concert and they feel that they experience that um, and they they take they like a sponge they take in these core narratives who is my enemy? What's the problem? What do I have to do without really rationally reflecting upon it? And this is one of the, the core things that I've so often seen with these side switchers. They, they are so driven. They are so positive about these core ideological narratives, the core element, like really in a DNA, fragments of a DNA. It's anti-Semitism or it's violence or it's masculinity, the, the warrior identity, etc., and that's for them the all-encompassing, the core of their being. So they seek out this activity, this group, this surrounding narrative, the stories that helps them to really live out these core drivers. And I think that's that's very, very important to understand. Many of them, oops, yeah, go ahead. No, I beg your pardon. I was I was just going to say I, I'm, I'm nodding here. I mean, I completely agree with you. You know, and I and, and I. I don't know why we continue to either willfully or otherwise ignore or downplay or minimize the role of, 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 of ideology and emotion. You know, I'm, I'm thinking right now about something Noemi Bohanna says quite regularly. You know, she, she routinely laments the fact that we're, 
we get so locked into this dichotomous way of thinking in in, in research on terrorism. You know that, that it's it's about the ideology or it's about the emotion. It's about this or it's about that. Well, well, these these issues are not mutually exclusive. Um, you know, your colleague and mine, Max Taylor, is very fond of saying that the, the thing we often get wrong about ideology is that we spend so much time focusing on the content of particular ideologies, you know, so trying to figure out what, what this one says or doesn't say. And we, we, we spend far less time figuring out how ideologies shape and give rise to and direct and influence behavior and how people feel. And that seems to be something we, we continuously downplay or, or in some cases neglect uh, completely. And they are very open, side switchers, for example, are very open about the emotions, about the social aspect. Many would actually include stories that prove how socially or emotionally the former environment was just not enough for them, was just not loyal enough, not you know positive and supportive enough. But they still wanted to, to keep on fighting the good fight in their perspective or, you know, bringing down the enemy. Um, so they, they go to an environment that for them feels right, supports them, is in their perspective, has the longer tradition, has more, you know, upstanding members. And all of these elements play a great deal of importance in, in their narratives and their explanations. But but for a but in the name of a very different cause. This is this is right, the, the, right. the fascinating implication for 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 identity. You know, so I'm right. thinking about the research of, of John Morrison, who has looked at you know Irish Republican groups in Northern Ireland, where 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 many would have left because of disillusionment around the peace process and things like that. But they would have gone to more extreme groups uh, of the same flavor, the same ideology, the same broad objective. So, so they would have gone from one IRA grouping to another, you know, more extreme IRA grouping, but, but, but not to, for example, a loyalist side, not to, mm -hmm. not to, to, to group the group that was once my enemy. I, I think that the, the phenomenon of side switching also tells us, at least indicates to us that there, there might be something like a, a source code behind violent extremism, ideologically speaking. Um, Anti-Semitism and toxic masculinity are the combined, the, these are the ideological highways between the far left, the far right, and the Salafi jihadi environment. These narratives, these ideological convictions punch holes into the boundaries, the social boundaries, the ideological boundaries between these groups that usually make them quite you know, inaccessible for members of, of the other side, of the enemy side, of the enemy camp. But when you use that card, when you say, I am 100% anti-Semit and I'm 100% the, the, the lethal warrior, um, and I want to go there where I can be that 200%, that allows you to be heard from the other side, indicating to us that there's something underlying, like a... a a general baseline ideological core that combines some of these extremist environments. And I, I'm very, very positive in saying that does not mean that they're interchangeable, that they're basically just looking for violence and it doesn't matter where they are. It, oh, it does okay. matter to them a great okay. deal. Okay. Yeah. yeah, 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 yes.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I'm in some ways. I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking back to um, um, you know several years ago, um, ISIS. One of one of the French Canadian converts, Andre Poulain, featured in a video, um, um, propaganda video for ISIS, and he said, um, you know, there's a role for everybody. So, you know, that there were, it was it was a way of I think from an organizational perspective signaling that. Um, they embrace diversity, they welcome it, they accommodate it, that there are different kinds of people out there who want to be involved. And and this is a way of saying that if you're not interested in fighting, no problem. We need doctors, engineers, nurses, and so on and so forth. But the idea that 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 as to 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 echo your words, that the the far right today is accommodating not just of people who want to do different kinds of things, but people from pre-existing very different ideologies and ways of thinking is 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 i think it's fascinating on one on one hand but it's also it's got to be worrying absolutely i was i was actually a bit bit shocked when i started to stumble across um chat rooms on iron march and fascist forge these these online far-right extreme chat rooms and they, they these were teenagers 15 16 17 18 years old who were openly discussing posting pictures of themselves saying you know a couple of years ago i was a commie right and now i'm i'm, I'm a nazi I'm, I'm a fascist and here's my story and they would cheer them on and say you know listen okay tell us everything what made you change what can we learn from that you're a great guy you know welcome here uh, they, they were so openly discussing site switching they were so interest fascinating about it in the far right environment so i've never seen anything like that in any other environment while the the far left i i suspect they they have used for former neo-nazis and they usually also state that they have former extreme right wingers in their in their midst but they are they do not want to be they do not want to appear as you know we generally think it's a cool thing to be a former neo-nazi should never have been a neo-nazi in the first place right uh, so we knew, we knew what is right. We didn't have to take the detour via the far right. So they usually have a quite low status in in the far left, with a, with a very few exceptions. And in Salafi jihadi environment, the the thing is complicated through the overarching um, narrative of religious conversion. And you also have written about this that obviously there are certain steps and certain core narratives of you know finding finding your faith in finding your spirituality. And this usually overrides the specific reasons and background stories of, of site switching. So obviously there, there can be many more site switchers in the Salafi jihadi environment, but they never really talk about it because for them it's about finding faith, it's finding their religion. And they all, all talk about it uh, to a certain degree. Um, for example, David May, a leading um, British neo-Nazi strategic thinker, highly violent, um, you know, converted to Islam and became one of the most outspoken proponents of martyrdom operations, suicide terrorism yes. in English language. Yes. Right? So he's, 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 and he wrote an autobiography claiming that what drove him was that he realized the fanaticism, the 100% commitment of Islamic extremist suicide bombers that he simply was not seeing in his far-right environment. Again, this ultra-toxic masculinity, ultra-violent version of I have to be 100% true to my core and have to act upon it. If I don't, 
I'm basically a weakling. I don't deserve to fight that fight. Yeah, and it's this, it's this, it's this fascinating. Uh, I, I keep saying fascinating. It's, it's, it is, but you know, I um, uh, do you remember that article that um, um, Heghammer wrote a few years ago about about recruitment, Al Qaeda recruitment in Saudi Arabia, and Heghammer Heghammer was curious about the kinds of signals that recruits would give to recruiters and vice versa about what they felt was valued. So, so you know, Heghammer's argument was that, you know, it's easy to fake piety. It's easy to fake religious commitment, but, but, but um, you know, having, having fought the fought, having been there, having, having done that, having proved yourself already was probably the easiest, um, uh, uh, probably the greatest facilitator in terms of being accepted by this new group. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I really wonder about that, the kinds of things that recruits, that side switchers feel that they need to exhibit to the new group and what the new group feels that they ought to signal that they're looking for in, um, uh, in, in, a, in a prospective recruit. It's most definitely in most cases, you know, anti-Semitism, anti hatred against the government, against the West, um, and then a very, very positive stand towards violence and masculinity. This is what almost all of them want to hear and want to see. And if you have past experience in violence, if you have gone to prison for your convictions, if you have used lethal force, that's usually seen as, as, as a good thing in your CV when you're a side switcher. So they want to see that. They want to see that you are able to be 100% committed. But then it's always also how to make your point, how to sell your, make your case. And then they want to see and hear, you know, what you have, what you have to say regarding bad things about your former group. You have to reveal about the negative inner workings of the enemy camp, obviously. Uh, that makes sense that you, you would use these negative information about what's, what's not going well in the enemy camp and bring that to the table for the new group so that they can be more effective, more lethal in attacking their enemy. So just it's, just it's, like yeah. your 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 normal everyday former who 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 wants to get out and, and decides to become involved in, you know, whatever we call it, countering violent extremism, but mm -hmm. about sort of, you know, making known the negative consequences of of involvement. But in a very, very different context here, obviously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is why I think it's it's a different type of disengagement or maybe I'm not sure if it's a failed disengagement or if it's a different type of disengagement that we so far have not really looked at in detail, not really studied at all. That we have just we know a couple of forms and types of disengagement that we have studied, that we understand, that we also support as a society. Um, but these forms of disengagement and, and subsequent reengagement. You know, they can tell us a lot about our own failures as society, even as researchers that we have so far, even though the site switching is, is a decades old phenomenon. Mussolini himself, the Duce, the Italian Duce, he, he was a leading Italian socialist. And then he basically left the, the, the socialist camp and created the fascist movement together with many other um, former socialists. The same thing uh, happened in the Second World War, even pre-Second World War Germany, a lot where people shifted between um, the violent communist street groups and the violent early Nazi 
um, street thugs, basically. And this, this psychology behind that, I think, is shockingly and, and not, not to our credit as researchers, has just been slowly acknowledged and using these terms, for example, salad bar ideology or ideological convergence. Um, and we, we just wake up to the fact that there's maybe a lot more happening between these groups than we have actually realized so far. So, so our objective, to use your own words back in you, is about trying to decipher what that source code might be. That's got to be the title of your next book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we need to look behind the narratives, the stories, the, the, the larger ideological framework, so to say, um, and really understand what core psychological drivers there are. What is it? Is it, is it toxic masculinity? Is it anti-Semitism? Is it something else? Like the, we, we need to find a Rosetta Stone of violent extremism, I think. Are you, are you optimistic about us being able to do that? This is maybe an unfair question, but, but I have <laughs> to ask. You brought it up, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I, think, uh, I think so that we can do it and we are making a, a tremendous progress in that field. I, when I see the discussions in the field about the role of ideology, about the role of trauma, about toxic masculinity, about bridging narratives, there's more and more comparative research being done, more empirical research being done. Um, all the the, the post 9-11 um, research, terrorism research that, that, that was 95, 99% focused on Islamic extremism, international terrorism. So all these old categories are slowly broken up. And I think that... What, what I see in the field is, is highly encouraging the, um, the spread of research, new journals, um, new projects, new comparative and collaborative research all around the world. I think it's just tremendous. Uh, and, and I'm really, really you, you said it, we're living in a golden age of terrorism research. And I fully agree with that. Yeah, and I was only paraphrasing um, what uh, Andrew Silk and uh, Jennifer um, Schmidt-Peterson said. So they, they surveyed the field and, and, and they, they suggested that we are in a golden age. I completely agree with them. Um, I, I agree. I mean, I think, I think we are, um, we are in, the, the field is in such a vibrant place compared to where it was even 10 years ago. I think the quality of data that is available to researchers is better. Um, um, I also think that that as as a community, we have gotten much better at asking um, better questions. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, I think I think we're you know we we still to to a degree, I mean, we're still obsessed with the same sorts of issues. You know, where we 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 we're trying to uncover the 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 nuts and bolts that constitute these complex processes, but the the questions that we are asking. The, 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 the granular level of analysis that we're now taking is, is, is lending itself to that much more effectively. Absolutely. Fully agree. Uh, you know, like, like everyone else, I'm sort of cautiously stepping back out into the real world these days. And, um, you know, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit rusty, you know, sort of learning to speak out loud at events and workshops and things. I was at a, 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 a work, an online workshop several weeks ago where a former extremist who who um, former white supremacist he's now involved in in you know cv pv whatever we're calling it and he he lamented the fact that in in his views we're we're still having the same conversations about de-radicalization that we were having 10 years ago 
Um, I have to ask you this question because um, of your expertise in this field. I mean, is that is that fair? Are we still are we still having the same conversations about de-radicalization that we were having ten years ago? I think it depends on the crowd you're looking at. In the practitioner field, the I would say yes. Unfortunately, yes. And there's always obviously some kind of main topic, a hot topic. For example, be it be it uh, uh, gender specific CVE or um, other issues that are you know all every couple of years there's a new major topic and then you have a wave of practitioner conference and, and workshops etc. But from my perspective, having been been active in this field for you know more than 10 years, 11, 12 years now, um, I I, th I see very little progress in terms of understanding the research, understanding the empirical basis um, in the practitioner field, because there's still a great lack of exchange between academics and practitioners um, to understand both of their realities and what they do, what, they, what, they, what they're trained to do, what they understand. Um, in the academic field, the absolute contrary, I would say. Uh, I see a light speed um, developments really being made. I, even last year or two years ago or three years ago, the field looked completely different. It feels to me like there's so much new work being done and new theories, new data being explored. I, I think that uh, after a long period of time where this field in, in, the, in, the, in the research community has more or less had this, this, this slumber period, is now awakening and, and more and more well-trained, motivated young researchers are pouring into this and want to study, want to understand this. But the, the practitioner field, I think, is not equipped and not trained, mostly not, to follow that discourse, to understand this course and really keeping up with the pace of the development of these um, of, of, of research in this field. So I think on the practitioner side, unfortunately, yes, we still have the same discussions, more or less. It, it's, it's, it's still quite in the, in the early steps. So what do we understand the equalization to be? What is disengagement? What is recidivism, et cetera? All these very core questions that researchers have moved beyond and, and you know, shown the complexity, the individual contextuality of these processes, but also developed core theories and steps and, and you know, validated them. So I think there, what we need more is to really bring practitioners to the, you know, to a level what, where they understand and can follow on their own the academic debate and academics more to understand the day-to-day -day operations and you know constraints of a CV practitioner. I think. So how do we do that? I mean, <laughs> is that is that on on us as academics or or or? Is it is it about practitioners being willing and able um, um, to 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 sit down and, and have conversations? I completely agree with you about the field. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind at all that um, the kind of progress made on on research and disengagement, de-radicalization, has been incredible the past several mm -hmm. years. Um, uh, you know, Gordon Club, Mary Beth Altier. I mean, just mm -hmm. just to name a, a few of the people doing some some stellar work. John Morrison and his colleagues um, uh, put out a not just a another lit review of research on disengagement de-radicalization. They did a systematic mm -hmm. review of, of literature post-2017 on this mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. 
So, 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 I mean, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we're, we're seeing it just take off in, in leaps and bounds, but, but mm-hmm. why is it not getting into the hands of practitioners? Well, in my experience, many practitioners, they not, they don't have the time to follow all of that. They don't have the, the skills and resources to do that. Many have don't, many don't have access to the academic journals. Many don't read and understand and speak academic language. Um, they don't have the training to do that. For them, it's really about that one study 20 years ago that says, yeah, psychological counseling is a good thing to do in, in DRED work, for example. And then they take it and say, listen, this is what we do. Here's the one study, and this is our method, and we do it. And then from then on, um, they, as, as, as practically working individuals with, with case management, they keep on doing it. There's very little funding and acknowledgement for monitoring and evaluation and, and bringing in academics from the early early stages. Um, and I think most of these workshops and, and, co- and conferences are still not that intermixed that I would like them to see. What we need is really, for starter, like a, a deradicalization for dummies book, 101. What's the state <laughs> of the art? Um, this is, no, this, these are research methods, 101 for practitioners in the CVE field. What's the difference between a study that uses three interviews versus a systematic literature review, for example? Uh, what are quantitative, qualitative m- methods? So that they learn how to read and understand the, the value of certain studies, what, you know, what they do say, what, what can be taken from them. But that needs a constant exchange on, on willingness to engage in that exchange. For practitioners, and I've, I've worked with many um, they don't really see the point at first. They think for them it's just a waste of resource. Why should they read all the studies that basically say the same thing or they sure. contradict each other all the time? So why would they do that? They have their cases to manage, right? They have to go to appointments. They have to, to acquire funding. While the, the academics would say, you know, where's your theoretical base? Where's your theory of change? Where are your empirical models? What are you doing? You don't even have any idea what oh, you're doing. Oh, very, you? very true. Absolutely very true. And I will say, you know, to, to be devil's advocate here, I will also hear academics saying what the practitioners will say. No, I'm too busy. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have time to explain my research in, in this way or that way. So I think... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we've got we've got naysayers, um, or rather, let me say, you know, let's not call them dummies if we want them to to, to all sit around the table together. But um, if we want people to sit down and have conversations, I think it's about illustrating that there are mutually beneficial outcomes here. So, and, and certainly in academia, we we need to work a lot harder to be better at communicating. The results of our research, uh, and even even research that might be in its you know early or exploratory phases, but 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 you through your journal for deradicalization and and our colleagues over at Perspectives on Terrorism, I think have are are, are ahead of the curve here in terms of recognizing the value of of open access publications because mm-hmm. slowly and but surely we're 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 addressing the reasons now as to why traditionally speaking at least academic research has been hard to um, uh, access. I think, I, think, I think the onus is definitely on us as academics to do a better job of, 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 of whether it's outreach or, or, or you know, publishing our research or disseminating our research in different ways. I mean, I'm not entirely sure what it is yet, but, but speaking purely for myself, I mean, I have in, benefited enormously 
from from exposure to practitioners and and it's gotten me i think to become a a, a better a better researcher over the years absolutely i think open access is the the the, the first step forward but to be honest i don't think that most cv practitioners would read a 15 20 page um, academic research article so the, even even the abstracts and, and summaries are sometimes too technical <laughs> and, and too far away from what they are you know used to, to handle. So I also see this development of more and more scientific blogs in the terrorism deradicalization broadly speaking environment, which is a good thing. But then again, people reading it, they need to know or they they need to be able to to discern to tell if it if the blog article is based on good research or bad research. What are the standards here when, when, when there's no peer review anymore? Anyone can write that blog article and say, you know, I, I did some research once and I think ABC. Uh, so we still need quality control. And, and this is the, the tough nut to crack. How to make it more accessible on one hand and retain the scientific rigor and quality of our work, which is absolutely crucial to this field. I, I, I keep saying, you know, bad ill-designed de-radicalization programs are not just a waste of resources. They're actually more risky, more dangerous. They, they're meddling in something that's highly complex with potentially dangerous individuals, and they ought, they should know what they're doing. So quality standards, control, evaluation, and, and rigorous scientific um, peer review and quality standards are crucial. And I think we, we probably should should try to to add this all the time when we when we exchange with with practitioners here here daniel coder's book from trader to zealot is out now from cambridge university press i urge you whether you are an academic or a practitioner you will you will be hard pressed to find a more accessible riveting book about about a a complex process, which um, is not necessarily as new as we think it is, but um, uh, this groundbreaking uh, piece of research does it justice. Daniel, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much, John. It was such a pleasure talking with you today. And that concludes today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Terrorism and Political Violence Journal, Utrecht University, and the hub Security and Open Societies. The sound design was done by Peter Fein. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the description. For now, we thank you very much for listening and please join us again for the next episode of Terrorism and Political Violence, the podcast. Mm -hmm.